Death is the engine that keeps us running, giving us the motivation to achieve, learn, love, and create. Philosophers have proclaimed this for thousands of years, just as vehemently as we insist upon ignoring it, generation after generation. Caitlin Dottie, Smoke It's In Your Eyes, and Other Lessons from the Crematory. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. Except today, we're dipping our toes into the nonfiction side of the book world with a very special guest. Today, we have my husband, Jesse, here to join us to talk about some macabre nonfiction. So, welcome to the show, Jesse. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've heard it recorded many times, but this is my first time on the show. It's your first time being on this side of things, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've I've seen you toil over the editing and the preparation a lot, but this is my first time really helping. So, so we're talking about nonfiction today, which is what you normally read. Like if you're if you're going to reach for a book, it's most likely going to be nonfiction. Yeah, that's right. I generally only read nonfiction. I grew up reading a little bit of fantasy, Tolkien, but I really never got too far out of that. Um, nonfiction's always been my go-to. I just like learning about how the world works. I know you can get that from fiction, but um, I tend to reach for nonfiction. I have a degree in uh, finance, so I like a lot of finance books, but business books, economics, uh, social science of all kinds. That's generally what I go for. Okay, so... People did have some questions for you since this is your first time coming on the show. So from the Patreon group, Danielle wants to know what your recommendations would be for people who like dark but want to stay away from horror because we know you're not a big fan of horror. Yeah, so I actually really like some dark things. I just have never gotten into the horror genre, but uh, Mindhunter is something out right now that I really, really enjoy. Um, it's very, very dark, very dark, um, without actually being horror. I really like psychology, sociology, things like that, and I think uh, Mindhunter ticks all those boxes for me. It's just a really, really good show on Netflix. Rachel, uh, our old co-host for the show, had a few questions, first of all being... What was your initial reaction when Stephanie said she wanted to start a horror podcast? So I don't really remember what my initial reaction was. I know Stephanie told me when we were dating that she really liked horror, but I didn't know how much until I actually got married. And then I realized, like, oh, no, this is actually a thing. This isn't something that, like, occasionally once a month I want to watch a horror movie and feel a little spooky. This is something that she actually really enjoys. So I was all I was fairly supportive, I think, yeah. when she wanted to do it. I have no problem with her doing it. It's a lot of fun. And Rachel wants to know what it's like to be married to a horror enthusiast. So, yeah, it's. I don't think it's really that different than someone who doesn't like horror like I, yeah, I don't really like it affects our everyday lives yeah I occasionally come home and she's watching something scary and I just wait till it's over and then I can watch my thing but yeah it's not not too different um 
She also asked if you have any favorite horror movies. Yeah, when I was younger, I really liked uh, The Sixth Sense. I think I watched that fairly soon after it came out. And uh, I really enjoyed that. It was suspenseful. It wasn't super gory or anything like that. Um, It was just an all-around pretty good movie. I enjoyed it. Um, I also liked Hannibal and Silence of the Lambs a lot. I really, like I said before, I like psychology and kind of understanding how crazy people's minds work. And uh, that was a good, uh, it was a great villain, like a really, really good villain. I, I enjoy that a lot in movies when you have a really, really psychotic villain. That's actually probably my favorite horror film. Silence if if you Silence of the Lambs, yeah. If you can call it horror, that's my favorite horror. So did your parents let you watch The Sixth Sense just full on through? Yeah, um, I remember my sister rented that, and my sister actually liked horror, so I occasionally watched them with her. I remember my mom would, like, not let me see the part where the ghost of Misha Barton is, like, telling Haley Joel Osment that she was poisoned for some reason. Like, my mom would cover my eyes. And she also covered my eyes when he goes to the school and it used to be the courthouse. Mm-hmm. And you see, like, the family hanging. Yeah, those were, <laughs> those were the only two, like, scary parts of the movie. Like, where the girl pukes, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then the... the Bodies hanging. Those were the only two, like, scares in the movie that I can remember. I thought when, like, the cabinets, like, bang open. Freaked me out. Yeah, That's I a joke. I, I don't remember that, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, she also had a few challenges for you. That is, can you name any of my favorite horror movies? So... I think I can. I know she likes a lot of everything horror related. So I think Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Is that original or remake? I actually don't know that. Original. Original. Okay. I, I would assume that, but I thought that might have been a trick question. Um, I would say Hereditary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she made me watch that one, and that one was very, very scary. It was very slow. That that was my, that was my problem with it. It was very very slow. But That's a lot of people's problem. With yeah, it. yeah, but yeah, it it really picked up at the end. There was some there was some freaky parts at the end of that one, and I'm gonna go out on a limb, but I'm gonna say Get Out. Get Out is a favorite. I thought you were gonna guess The Witch. Y- yeah, <laughs> I don't. I think Nightmare on Elm Street kind of checks the campy old style horror hereditary is the very artsy type horror film and then get out is kind of the new crossover somewhat funny thought-provoking movies i i figured i covered some of the different genres there that's a good that's pretty good yeah those are all favorites of mine so and then rachel asked me if you wanted to try a horror book what would i recommend and i feel like it might be a cheat to just say silence of the lambs (laughs) Yeah, that I probably would enjoy that. It, it is a, a police thriller, mm-hmm. horror character study. I, I like some of those things. So, Yeah, I feel like that would be kind of the only thing that's a win. Like, I think part of me wants to recommend something like The Hellbound Heart because it has a... I guess the novella doesn't really have a mythos as much as the novels explore the mythos, but, like, the mythos of the the Cenobites because um, I know Jesse likes fantasy and he likes things that have a rich mythology and I think 
that's why he cannot watch slasher franchises because they have a very uh, suspend your disbelief mythology that sometimes contradicts itself in different sequels and you just kind of have to go with it <laughs> and Jesse's not like a go with it type of person yeah I find myself questioning how a lot of these things work in these worlds so so yeah probably I'm just gonna go with the easy answer and say silence of the lambs and usually in the podcast we talk about movies or other media that fits in within the subgenre. So instead of movies, uh, I'm going to mention a few documentaries that are either about horror or about things that are dark or horror adjacent. So quite a few of these are chilling obsessions that I've mentioned on the show previously. Um, one that I don't think I've mentioned is The American Scream which is a documentary that follows the town of Fairhaven, Massachusetts. And it's just a whole town that gets really into Halloween. And you're following all these different families that are putting up these intricate haunted houses and just really get into the spirit and it gets competitive. And it was just very interesting to follow all of these different families and this cultural tradition within this town. Um, another one talking about haunted houses <laughs> was... Uh, one that was my chilling obsession, I think, when we did the Ladies of the Fright episode, and that was Haunters, the Art of the Scare. And that was one that Jesse did come home, <laughs> like, halfway through while I was watching it. And there's an article going around, I think it's on BuzzFeed now, where it's like, this guy will give you $20,000 if you finish his haunted house. And that's the one of the main haunted houses that's featured in the documentary. That's McKamey Manor. And... Yeah, it's a it's a whole intense experience where you go in and you just basically get tortured for several hours and no one makes it out because there's no safe word. Yeah, I did come home to her watching this and it actually was really interesting. Um, they do a lot of background research on the person going into the house. They find your worst fears and uh, they exploit those. They it, And they really, really go after them you know if you're afraid if you're claustrophobic they're going to stick you in a casket and hold you in there and pour things on you and doesn't matter how much you scream there's no safe word they're not letting you out until they're done with you in there until they've broken you and it's just insane like the group of people that he's recruited to do all this and it's just just an experience I think um he puts the videos up on YouTube so if you're in any way curious I mean you can see someone go through this um and wonder why why anyone would want to do this. Yeah, and it is weird that anybody would want to get in on this because everybody who's done it freaks out and says, "This is I shouldn't have done that." So I don't I don't really know what people are people are doing going back to it, but everybody thinks they can handle it, and very rarely can they handle it. I mean, I guess I can see the like curiosity, like, "Oh, I wonder how well I would do in this situation." I mean, I can tell you right now, like five minutes in, actually, like. It starts out, you have to walk to the end of a cul-de-sac and you have to face out so you can't look at the street. So you're just looking at this dead end and this van comes up and they just come out and put like a bag over your head and these giant men just like throw you in a van and that's how the experience starts. So I think like at that point I would be like, no, <laughs> I'm done. Yeah, it, it really is a lot. It's one thing I, I would like to try to you know, conquer some of my fears, but I don't think that's the way to go. Like I am claustrophobic and I would like to see how long I could last inside a coffin or, you know, buried somewhere, but I need a safe word. I need, I need to know that I'm in control at the end of the day. Yeah. 
And the documentary did have other extreme haunts that did have safe words, and they uh, interviewed a lot of people that work in that industry professionally, and that, you know, they showcase the bigger ones like Halloween Horror Nights in any way. It's really good. I think it's on Netflix right now if you want to check it out, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, and then two good documentaries on the history of the horror genre on Shudder that are great are The History of Horror by Eli Roth. And that's just multiple episodes uh, where he has guests on to talk about the impact of certain films and how they impacted the history or were a commentary on things going on at history in that point or how that film impacted the genre and filmmaking in itself. And he just has a really great lineup of guests. He has, you know, Stephen King and he gets a lot of the big actors that were featured in those huge films. And Eli Roth, of course, is like a huge horror guy. Yeah, yeah. I loved him in, in Glorious <laughs> Bastards. That's really all I know him from. But I know he's a movie producer, director, horror. Donnie. <laughs> you got a German here that wants to die for country. Oblige him. <laughs> so that's a lot of fun. And I know he also has a, a podcast to go alongside it where he talks with different horror directors. And I think not just horror directors. I know he also has a Stephen King episode where he talks to him. Uh, but another really great horror documentary on Shudder is Horror Noir, which is the history of black horror and black representation within horror with a lot of great guests, including Tanana Reeve Du, whose books we've talked about on the podcast. And I know she is a professor and teaches a class on black horror at UCLA. So she was a really good person to have for this documentary. I think she was one of the main producers. And it just talks about the impacts of films like Candyman. And, of course, you have Jordan Peele on there talking about Get Out. I don't think Us had come out at the point when the documentary was released. But that's definitely a good one, and I definitely recommend checking it out. Anyway, those are some documentaries on some dark and disturbing things or on horror and horror-adjacent things. But that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about books. So... Let's talk about some books. This episode is brought to you by The Tear Collector by Sean Burgess. After a young girl with autism goes missing in the small Appalachian town of Harper Pass, Brooks Raker and his friends are inadvertently drawn into the police investigation. As the town suffers a mysterious death, more kids disappear, and the boys experience a series of unsettling phenomena, it becomes clear that the fate of their missing classmate, Margot Combs, pales in comparison to what lies in wait in the margins of the town. Between avoiding the bullies who are stalking them and running from the encroaching lethal darkness, the walls are closing in around Brooks and his friends. They soon realize their fates are inextricably bound, and if they have any hope of surviving, they must unravel the dark secrets of Harper Pass before those secrets can devour them. The Tear Collector is a fast-paced paranormal thriller that advanced readers have described as riveting, horrifically chilling, spine-tingling fun, and hard to put down. The Tear Collector comes out December 2nd. I will have pre-order links in the show notes as well as the description box for this episode. And thank you again for supporting the show. Okay, so the first book I want to talk about is Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies, and the Making of a Medical Examiner by Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. I have like a weird nonfiction rabbit hole that I fall into, which is memoirs of people that work in the death industry. I find them absolutely fascinating. And in this memoir, we follow Dr. Judy Melanick. We follow her two years of training to be a forensic pathologist and everything that came with that. 
autopsies, investigating death scenes, counseling, grieving family members. Like she really gets into all the different aspects of that job. So she actually started her training in New York. Uh, two months before September 11th. So she does have a lot of chapters talking about what it was like to be there during the aftermath. And it was very much an all hands on deck situation. She talks about having some anthrax scares while she was there. What I thought was funny is she starts off the memoir talking about uh, being that person that gets cornered at dinner parties. And I was thinking, would I corner her at a dinner party? Yes, absolutely. You would. <laughs> I would I would be really interested to hear what she has to say too. So I wouldn't I wouldn't mind if we were at a dinner party with her and you cornered her. I was thinking that I'm like I feel like I would definitely be that person that would be like really. At most at most dinner parties you would not say anything to anybody. You just sit there unless you were really friendly with them beforehand. But this person you would you would find her and you would you would ask her a million questions. She said one of the questions she gets asked the most is what is the worst way to die? Which I don't think I would lead with that. That's something you work up to. You know, like, oh, what was it like? How'd you get into that? What is the worst way to die? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So she does answer that later in the book, and I will not spoil that for you in case you're interested to go pick that up. Um, It's pretty slow and painful. She also talked about different myths and, you know, just little things that she's learned. And one nugget that I always remembered from this book, because I read it a few years ago for a book club, and one thing I always remembered is she talked about your pets and how they will treat you when you die. And your dog will definitely wait until it's absolutely starving and has no other choice. But to eat you, your cat will not wait. It'll just go. It'll just eat your eyeballs. Yeah, that's why I'm a dog person. (laughs) I'm still a cat person. I respect it. Like, one slither into another. Like, do what you gotta do. I'm dead. I don't need my eyeballs. Charlotte can have them. What I liked about this is that it, it covered a lot. It covered, like, what it's like to go to a crime scene, what it's like to do an autopsy, and uh, what it's like to kind of help with the investigation and, you know, do an autopsy and find something out that's, you know, useful to the cops. And it just really gets into all these really interesting aspects of what it's like to be a medical examiner with all these, like, fascinating stories. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. Actually, that's something that would be right down my alley. Yeah, I could see you enjoying this one. So for rating, I would put this room temperature. I would say this. there are some stories that are somewhat disturbing. Nothing that I don't think anybody couldn't handle. Even like the worst way to die was definitely like a, a freak accident type of deal. And I would say like if anything that the emotion that I probably felt the most was like the vignettes, if they really evoked any intense emotion, it was sadness. I mean, especially in the post like 9-11 chapters, you know, they're very somber. It's not something that's like, <laughs> um, yeah, more just, sad than scary. Yeah. Uh, but absolutely fascinating. This is one, too, where it's the, um, I get a case of the did you knows. And I don't know if I (laughs) told you, right after I read this book, I had to work a shift with my boss. And um, I work as a baker. So I was I was working in the kitchen with him. And I was like, did you know that when medical examiners do an autopsy, they use a soup ladle and I grabbed a soup ladle. I'm like, just like this. And they'll just scoop out all the fluids in your body. Isn't that fascinating? And I don't think he found it as fascinating as I did. I think he was kind of (laughs) disturbed. So yeah, I would say that's more on the room temperature side. Uh, I would say this is a book you would be safe giving as a gift, honestly. If someone likes kind of the 
a creepier things or is really interested in the way the human body works, this is a good like gift book that I don't think you would need to make a lot of. <laughs> and you did just give this as a gift, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> That's why I'm saying that. I'm like, this book makes a great gift if someone's really curious or into anatomy or just like really interesting memoirs. I definitely recommend this. This is Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies, and the Making of a Medical Examiner by Judy Melanick and TJ Mitchell. So the book I read for this episode is From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death by Caitlin Doughty. And I'll start off with the quote she starts the book off with because I think it sums up the book pretty good. Adults who are racked with death anxiety are not odd birds who have contracted some exotic disease, but men and women whose family and culture have failed to knit the proper protective clothing for them to withstand the icy chill of mortality. That was a quote by Irvin Yalom, the psychiatrist. One thing she talks about a lot in the book is how um, American or Western culture has a really sanitary, um, clinical, almost unhealthy uh, view of death, where we want to get as far away from the body as possible right away. We want to kind of separate ourselves from death. We don't want to think about it, talk about it, or really deal with it in any kind of healthy way. And I think her purpose for the book is to kind of explore different views of death around the world. So she goes to a number of places and talks to a bunch of people who are in the death industry and their culture, whether that be uh, tribes in Indonesia or fancy death entrepreneurs in California. Death entrepreneurs? Yeah, so she ends the book actually in Joshua Tree and L.A., some of the area around there, talking about how many wealthy Americans have started to change their views of death. And uh, some people have obviously stepped up to try to profit off of that. In some ways, that's a good thing. In some ways, it's a bad thing. She talks about how there are green funerals in LA that cost a lot of money, but are better for the environment. And then there's some green burials in uh, Joshua Tree um, that are healthy and good for the environment and relatively inexpensive. That's really how she ends the book. She talks about some of the ways that she kind of wants to go. Um, But she does some more kind of fascinating things before that. She goes to Indonesia and she talks to tribes people who have huge parties for the dead where they carry the dead bodies on their shoulders and they keep them with them for long periods of time and uh, really celebrate their life and their death in uh, it seems to be fairly healing for them. She then went to Michoacan, Mexico. She talks about the uh, Mexican tradition of Day of the Dead where they set up the ofrenda, where the the dead can come back and visit them. And it's just a once of the year celebration of those who they've lost and uh, really just take time to remember them. She talks a bit about how uh, in Mexico they, they lost that tradition for a long period of time. They thought it was... Uh, kind of for uh, more rural, um, less educated people. But now in Mexico, they're kind of bringing it back as a tradition uh, that they lost. It seems to be healthy to to really be able to grapple with death, to grapple with uh, the f- your feelings of uh, those you've lost. I know we were actually in Michoacan a couple of years ago, and I know that they have... They have casket stores everywhere with caskets in the window and like fancy ones like right up front. And it's just interesting because in the U.S. that's really not a thing. Like I've never seen a casket store. I don't think I've seen 
commercials for that kind of stuff. It's something we kind of put on the back burner in our culture. She goes to a number of different places, but she also goes to Japan, uh, where Japan is a very, very crowded area. In Tokyo specifically, it's very, very crowded, and uh, graveyards and uh, land there were getting really, really expensive. So they found some kind of high-tech uh, ways to be able to visit your your dead relative crematoriums that allow you to put your dead in a urn, put them in basically like a vending machine and store them, and then when you want to go visit them, you just put in the uh, whatever allotted amount, and uh, it brings it up for you, and you can uh, you can mourn over it or you can you can think about it, and it's just a way to save space. But it's an interesting uh, practice that us in the U.S. rarely have to think about. So what was the most jarring one? So the most jarring one was by far uh, the last one she talked about, which was a sky burial in Tibet, where a death professional called a rogyapa would dismember the body of the recently deceased and feed them to vultures. And they do this in the mountains, and uh, they basically crush up all of the remains. They they deflesh the bones, mash up the bones and mix them with yak butter and milk um, and lay them out on the mountain and allow eagles or vultures to swoop in and pick apart the bones. And they usually put the bones out first so that the vultures are still hungry and then they, they feed them the better scraps of meat so that they make sure that they get all of the body into the air. Um, it's seen as a bad omen if the vulture doesn't finish the the meat of the recently deceased human. Um, and yeah, it's it's uh it was pretty it sounded pretty graphic. So is this like a private ritual? Like only he and the body are there, or does anybody see this? So this is open to the public, and uh, I assume that the the community is there to kind of honor their dead and watch uh, their community member, their family, uh, join the circle of life. Uh, But recently, there have been waves of Chinese and Western tourists visiting and trying to take pictures and just gawk at this. And uh, uh, recently, um, the Tibetan government has enacted uh, no photo laws and trying to prevent tourism of such a... A somber act and a somber tradition. Um, the author tells one story about a tourist who tried to hide behind some rocks with a telephoto lens to take pictures of the sky burial, uh, but they had inadvertently stationed where the vultures like to take off from. And so because they were there, the vultures never settled and never actually took part in it so the body was never taken care of by the vultures which again is a bad omen by the tibetans that practice this tradition so one thing that i think was the most interesting to me was the natural decomposition movement industry whatever you want to call it occurring right now i think a lot of people especially younger people are thinking more about the environment thinking about what what the world is going to look like in the future and they want to just have a more green life and death. And uh, I think that's really interesting. I actually am very on board with just being 
buried in the dirt and decomposing. But she talks about a, d- a few different ways that this can be sped up, this can be safer, um, and this can be even more eco-friendly. There's some some uh, businesses popping up and some nonprofits popping up where they will take your body, decompose it, and uh, some places are actually using the bones and donating them, which don't decompose as quickly as the rest of your tissue, donating them to science so that they can be used, um, which kind of the best of both worlds, best of everything. I, I would like to be donated to science, but at the same time, you have to be cremated after that. So this way, you can actually have an impact that benefits humans and benefits the the environment both at the same time. I was going to say that reminds me of a big plot point in Six Feet Under, which I know Caitlin Doughty in her book talks about when she got her job at the crematorium, like one of the first things she did was buy the DVD box set of Six Feet Under. <laughs> Where there's a character that wants to have a green burial. And this was like 2001. So this was like way before all of this. And she wants to be buried in like under a tree in like a canvas bag. Yeah, it was like everything was biodegradable. Yeah, they discussed that a bit. Um, like in Joshua Tree, there are some places where you can just kind of drop off a body um, and uh, just be accepted into the earth. Um, and like I mentioned, some of the some of the businesses and nonprofits, the one specifically where they take the bones and donate them, um, they put you in this basically mulch, uh, and they water you every day. Um, and it speeds the decomposition. And the author mentioned that they invite the family to pour the water onto the the mound to kind of save the tradition. I think I think humans really want that that tradition that comes with religious practices or uh, tribal cultural practices, um, while at the same time being green and being um, kind of progressive in that way. Um, so I think I think it really works out where the the pouring of the water onto the body and onto the mulch um, can help the family kind of come to terms with it, maybe over a slower period of time, feel like they're taking an active part in it, um, much like visiting a grave or um, watching the descending of the casket into the ground. So yeah, I, I really do want a natural burial. I really don't, I, I hate the idea. I'm not even that... Um, green but i i hate the idea of putting a huge giant metal casket into the ground that's just going to hold my bones for centuries that that doesn't sound appealing to me at all i really hope that we go more natural just lower me into the ground in a canvas bag maybe put a a small stone that if anybody wanted to come visit my grave they could but i i would like to be just as natural as possible in death The author talks a lot about the funeral industry, which is the industry she works in, and how uh, they it is an industry like many others, and they need they need to make a profit. In many ways, they do some pretty dastardly things to to keep that profit coming. I mean, why are there only two ways to be buried? You either get cremated or you get buried in the earth with a giant casket and both of them cost thousands of dollars they're uh, expensive and um, not the most natural thing the point of the book is to discuss alternatives to this and she looks at other cultures to do so she discusses how there are only two main options when taking care of the body after death um, 
one is cremation and the other is embalmment and then burial in the ground. In Jewish and Muslim cultures, they believe in getting the body in the ground as quickly as possible and without cutting the body. Um, and so in a lot of places, it's really hard to be a Muslim in the industry because if you don't believe in cutting open the body and embalming it, um, taking care of it that way, you're just excluded by law from doing that. Like if you own a funeral home, you have to offer those options. And these are laws that the funeral industry has lobbied for um, to make sure that the people there are their people. It, it's a lot like uh, in a lot of states, hairdressers have to have certain licenses and it just it keeps the people who are already in the industry doing well. And sometimes that works out for people and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, in an industry like funeral, nobody really wants to talk about it. There's not too many politicians arguing to change things. And there really should be some change, especially in larger cities where the space is limited. There's a lot of desire to have a more back-to-the-earth, natural, green burial. It should be allowed. And in a lot of places, it just legally isn't. So rating-wise, this is not a scary book. It's not if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably not a graphic book. There's a lot of things around the body and the remains, but it's not it's not too graphic. I think the most graphic thing is the sky burial. So I would say it's room temperature. If you're not into hearing details about body parts, then this might be not for you. But if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. And that was From Here to Eternity, Traveling the World to Find the Good Death by Caitlin Doughty. Very interesting. And I did read her memoir that she put out before this one, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. It's like an other lessons from the crematorium, I think was the subtitle. Um, that was very good. Very much enjoyed that. But a book that I thought about while you were talking about donating your body to science, if you are interested in what happens when you donate your body to science, I recommend a book called Stiff by Mary Roach, where that's what she is doing is finding out like what does it mean to donate your body to science and she just follows the different avenues that can take and I think my favorite place that she went to was a, a body farm where people that work in forensics study what decomposition looks like under different circumstances to help with forensics so they can look at a body and say like oh this body's been out you know exposed to the elements for this long and they get better timetables so but it's like a lot of different avenues that that can take because you really don't have control of what science means when you just donate it <laughs> so if you're interested in that at all that's another book I recommend but that is not my next pick my next pick is the poisoner's handbook murder and the birth of forensic medicine in jazz age new york by deborah blum so this is a historical look at new york in the 20s and 30s and the birth of toxicology as a field of study. It mainly follows Charles Norris and Alexander Gutler, who were the two biggest names in getting toxicology where it is today. And the way the book is laid out is each chapter is a different substance, and she goes into scientifically what the substance is, where it's found, and then the rest of the book is a historical look at its significance and some interesting cases throughout this specific time in history in New York. And so you have things like arsenic, chloroform, cyanide. And it was really interesting learning about all of this 
alongside of prohibition and what that was like. So, yeah, she gets into, like, the culture of speakeasies and how there was cocktails with a lot of juices to mask the flavor of the fact that you were drinking gin that was made in a bathtub. And that a lot of people died from drinking at speakeasies, from drinking alcohol that was made with what alcohol. And there's a lot of just really interesting cases. Like, I didn't know that we used to fumigate with arsenic, apparently. And... They would do that at hotels and they would have deaths and wonder, like, why did people die from this? So, yeah, it took us a while to figure out that we shouldn't do that with arsenic. One that I found really interesting was the plot to, like, Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice are based on a a true story, which I know Jesse and I were watching something (laughs) and someone was explaining the plot of Double Indemnity. And we were like, what a weird, like, insurance loophole. Like, yeah, you can have life insurance on your spouse. And if they happen to die in an unexpectedly violent way, big payout for you. (laughs) Yeah, I just thought that couldn't possibly be real. There's no way an insurance company would create that. (laughs) Turns out it was real. And um, there was a real woman who cashed in on it. Her name in real life was Ruth Snyder. And she was executed at Sing Sing. And there's a whole bit on that how there was um you know it was a big deal it was in all the papers it was a very public trial with her and her lover and they started blaming each other over who had what part in this conspiracy and it was interesting because apparently they teamed up and attempted to kill her husband seven times and I guess it finally took on the eighth time when they just attacked him with a lot of chloroform and then they staged a robbery but she was executed at Sing Sing and what was it Interesting was that a reporter snuck through um, to watch the execution and took a picture. And he took a picture right when she was getting electrocuted. And that was on the front page of the paper. And that was just like unheard of at the time. (laughs) And also he was not supposed to be there with that. So it was kind of a big deal for the time. It was just fascinating with all of the historical context and the little vignettes of Things that were happening, there was a case where someone poisoned a pie at a diner and a lot of people died. And um, that's where they really had to step up and figure out how do we investigate toxicology? How do these things bring us closer to finding out who is the person that poisoned in a a situation like this? Um, So in that standpoint, it was really, really interesting. So yeah, if you're at all interested in... uh, this era in American history or the birth of toxicology. It's a very interesting read. Of course, very room temperature. Again, this is basically like a a history book, kind of macabre in nature because you are dealing with people getting poisoned. So if you are interested in um, basically the history of poisons or toxicology as a field, definitely check it out. That is The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age New York by Deborah Blum. And the last book I want to talk about is Monster, She Wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson. Um, I mentioned this book in my most anticipated new releases um, episode that came out this year. And oh my gosh, I got my copy of it and I love it. First of all, it is from Quirks, so it is just a beautiful book. It's basically a collection of profiles of different female authors and their works. It's chronologically, and it starts like 
in the 1600s. So we are getting to like the very first women who wrote science fiction and speculative fiction. And I just love that there are so many people in here that I haven't heard of. Like, of course, they talk about the big names. You know, you have your Mary Wollstonecraft Shelleys. You have your Anne Rice. You have your Shirley Jackson. But it is like, bet you didn't know about this person. And you're right. I didn't know about them. So it starts with Mad Madge or Margaret Cavendish. And she was born in 1623. And it ends on Afrofuturist Jewel Gomez, who is obviously a contemporary. She's still alive today. And then the last couple chapters are just subgenres and they just throw so many names at you. And I am so excited. I can definitely tell I'm going to be using this as a reference for stuff on the podcast because it is really delves into subgenres and not only gives recommendations for great female authors to check out. And each chapter is just so well researched and it not only includes their work, you know, they have a whole like, here's what their bibliography is, but it also has read-alikes. So hey, if you enjoyed this, you might also enjoy this, which is just great. Just an extra thing that just really adds to the reading experience. So if you are someone who likes reading horror and wants to read more women in horror or lesser known authors or books that were forgotten classics, definitely check this out. I can't even talk about like, I love this so much. Like I said, this will be a reference book for me. And for a rating, this is room temperature. Like I said, this is a profile of authors and their works. You get many little biographies and bibliographies and read-alikes. So that is Monster She Wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson. <laughs> Now it's time for Chilling Obsessions. Um, I will go first. Jesse doesn't usually enjoy a lot of like creepy stuff on his own. So he'll just talk about a show that he's enjoying. <laughs> uh, but the show I want to talk about is Creep Show on Shudder. Um, so this is brand new. It came out a few weeks ago. So this is an anthology series. Each week you get an episode that is two stories. I'm still not fully caught up. I think there's four episodes out now and I've seen two and a half. Uh, so ones that I really liked was in the premiere episode, we have Grey Matter, which is a story by Stephen King, and House of the Head, which is a story by Josh Mallerman. And it's a story that I mentioned on the podcast that I enjoyed, I think, like over a year ago, I talked about it. Um, it was in the New Fears collection by Mark Morris. It's got the same device as the original Creep Show series of films where it's these different stories and then you kind of get this um, comic book panel device to tell the story. I just really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. And I think it's what I enjoy from most anthology series. Also from like the, I also really enjoyed the story The Finger. I thought it had a good blend of horror and humor and I just thought it was a ton of fun. So that is Creep Show on Shudder. So like Stephanie said, I'm not really into horror, but my chilling obsession is Succession, the HBO show. Um, I just really love it. They, it's great. It's got a lot of great characters. It's about a family that are billionaires and own a media empire that's loosely based off of Fox and maybe a little Disney added in. And they backstab and fight over uh, succeeding their dad um, as CEO and their dad is straight up evil if you haven't watched that I encourage you guys to check it out it's really really good not horror but fairly dark you might like it I like the theme song 
Yeah, the the theme song is really, really good. They might overdo it a little bit in the middle of the episode, but it's really, really good. So thank you for joining me for this episode. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun. And I have some recent reviews from Apple Podcasts. So this one is titled Love, all caps, with an exclamation point, five stars from Max Hell Hole. It says, I've recently become interested in trying to read books in the horror genre. This podcast is excellent, and I have added many books to my never-ending TBR. Thanks for a wonderful show. Thank you so much for taking the time to write that. I also have one from Darcy in Charge titled New to Horror, five stars. As a person who's recently been getting into the horror genre, this podcast is great. I love the rating system and the hosts are fun and informative. Thank you so much for writing that, Darcy in Charge. I have a review from August, but I am technologically challenged, so I actually just figured out how to access international reviews because when I check iTunes, it obviously only gives me American reviews. So I have one here from Nudolf from the UK. It says, great podcast, five stars, good podcasts from two passionate fans of horror stories. They talk about some excellent sounding books and sometimes movies as well. My recommendations are Summer of Night by Dan Simmons, Ghost Story by Peter Straub, The Keep by F. Paul Wilson, and I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ian Reid. I have read two out of four of those, and they are good, solid recommendations. So thank you so much, Nudolf, for taking the time to rate the show. And thank you so much to all of our international listeners that take the time to review. I will see in the next episode if I can read some more of your reviews, since, like I said, I just figured out how to access them. So thank you so much for doing that. And thank you again for sticking with the show as we go through yet another change. You can always feel free to send me an email or message me on Instagram or Twitter with uh, anything you would particularly like to see on the show. I am always here. And anyway, speaking of how you can get in contact with me, (laughs) this podcast, uh, this is Books in the Freezer. We are a podcast that posts episodes every other Tuesday. The Twitter handle is at Books Freezer Pod. Instagram is at Books in the Freezer. Facebook is facebook.com slash Books in the Freezer. That is the page for the podcast. There is also a group if you would like to join that. You can send us an email. Our email address is Books in the Freezer at gmail.com. There is show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at booksinthefreezer.com. And we are also on Patreon if you want to go check us out there. Um, I'm Stephanie. My personal Twitter handle is lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. And I am on Instagram at that's what she read. And that's that's with two A's and on YouTube as that's what she read. So join us next time for Books in the Freezer. Thank you.